You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The question I usually hear is, did you stop fishing after the perfect storm? You know, you lost friends in that storm. That was such a terrible thing. And, you know, the answer is, no, I didn't stop fishing after the perfect storm. Unfortunately, that's part of the business. Fishing boat captain Linda Greenlaw. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Thirty years ago today, November 1st, 1991, the six-man crew of the sword-fishing boat, the Andrea Gale, was fighting and losing its battle with what has come to be known as the Perfect Storm. All six were lost at sea. Now, a close friend of theirs back on shore was a fellow sword-fishing boat captain named Linda Greenlaw. Now, if you've seen the 2000 movie, A Perfect Storm, Linda Greenlaw was portrayed by actress Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. No, you see, the thing is, Captain, I'm looking for a guy to come home to Maine with me, buy a house, and raise a few kids. And what does that guy and you do after? Oh. Now, come on, look. The thing is, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm fit to do this. I just don't see the romance in it. But you got it, Captain Greenlaw. Now, Linda Greenlaw eventually wrote three books of her own after that, including a 2004 volume that she called All Fishermen Are Liars. It had a lot lighter tone to it than A Perfect Storm did. So here now from 2004, Linda Greenlaw. You tell us at the beginning, and I'm, I'm opening the page so I can get your exact quote, because uh, I don't want it to be a false quote. <laughs> there are no composites used. Every date and detail and description is accurate and completely well-grounded in fact. And I believe you. You do? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, it was, it was really fun when Hyperion asked me to write a nonfiction book of sea stories. And I laughed. I said, well, it's like an oxymoron. What do you mean nonfiction sea stories? How, how do I know they're all true? Well, you know, your audience is nonfiction. We don't want you to write the novel yet. So, um, yeah, go to town. And it was, it was a fun book to write. I did enjoy writing this book, which I could not say about my first two books. You painful didn't, you didn't really enjoy writing those no writing is um a lot of hard work for me i'm used to working hard i'm a fisherman but totally different type of work mm -hmm. um this book was more fun i think for a couple of reasons one i've had the experience of doing it twice before so i knew a little bit more what to anticipate as far as the process goes and i knew that i was going to get through it as opposed to the first two books when i thought oh my god can i really do this <laughs> um and it was fun for me to be writing about other people and using other people's stories. Refreshing for me at this point, because the first two books were, you know, memoirs. Mm -hmm. 43 years old, I don't have another thing to say about myself. <laughs> if you've read both my first two books, you know more about me than I know. <laughs> I'd have to start making things up if I'd write another book about myself. But you know, what, what, one of the points that you make with a book like this is that anyone of any age, of either gender, of any race or ethnic background, anywhere in the world who has ever dropped a line in water has a fish story has some sort of a story, and invariably that story gets embroidered a little bit, embellished just a little bit, becomes a little larger than life with every telling of that story. Oh, sure. I mean, it's the, um, the classic, the one that got away. Every time you tell the story, that fish is a little bit bigger. I have. I'll have regale you after the interview with my crabbing story. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, can't wait. But it's it's a great little story. I remember so clearly. I remember all the details, but, you know, I find myself every time I tell it, even though I remember exactly what the actual truth was, 
it just gets a little bit wilder and wilder every time I tell it. Well, see, I think you're a step ahead of a lot of people who retell these stories because I have problems remembering the truth after a while. <laughs> when you retell the story so many times, I mean, I can make it better every time I tell it. And I like, you know, the later versions more than I do the first one. So I tend to remember that as being the truth. But honestly, at the end, by the time you reach the end of a book like this, I found it didn't really matter to me much if every detail wasn't exactly 100% swear it in court on a stack of Bibles true. These are just great stories. I think so, too. And I obviously had many stories to choose from in putting this book together. And it, it was kind of a, it was a tough thing to choose which ones I wanted to include. I left a lot of very good stories out, but I wanted to have a nice texture to the book with a variety of different types of stories. You know what, when, when uh, people knew I was writing this book, everybody wanted to tell me the story of their worst experience, the worst weather, people dying. And you know, how many of those do you want to read? <laughs> They're very intriguing. I love stories like that, and I'll listen to them all day long. But to put a book together that might be enjoyable for, let's say, a, a broader audience is a little bit more fun for me to, to mix the stories up a little bit. Not all about the one that got away. Not all about the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. So hopefully I was, I was successful in mixing them up. But it is also very appealing that this book is not just a mishmash of randomly collected stories. There's a point to what is going on between the first page and the last of this book. Yes, I I did not want to write a book of short stories. And my editor did not want a book of short stories. So um, setting this book in a bar room, you know, sea stories are two places where they're traditionally traded. Uh, One of them is a deck of a boat and the other one is a bar room. You know, um, you know, over a beer. And in this case, um, the book is set in a bar room. And yes, I have had many lunches that have gone into dinner and beyond with my best friend, Alden Lehman. That's just the way it goes when we get together. And yes, we always talk about fishing and bad weather. Sea stories always crop into the conversation and sort of take over the conversation. And yes, other people always join in. So this was a nice convention to um, get all these sea stories in book form. Was it just happy coincidence? that all these stories appeared in the same, what, 12, 14-hour period? Well, no. <laughs> that is actually um, just a convention. Um, you know, it's the same thing when I wrote my first But, you know, book. Th- again, I don't care. Exactly. If, you know, <laughs> these stories could all have come out of one Yeah, lunch, exactly. No doubt. So, you know, if, if I were really, you know, held to that, <laughs> I would, of course, say yes. And my friend Alden would swear to it Mm -hmm. and maybe someday you will remember that that's how it happened eventually i will you know a few more readings i'm (laughs) my memory's getting more clear every day is there i guess there is a natural progression of story let me top that story let me top that story let me tell you about what happened to me story and that kind of thing it just builds and builds as you go along doesn't it? it it does build one story really does lead to another and you know if you start telling me your crabbing story it will no doubt remind me of something, and I won't be able to wait until you finish your story because mm-hmm. you know I'll be afraid I'll forget what I was going to say or something. So yeah, the stories just quite naturally uh, fall into place. And there's no such thing as just a, a silent observer of discussions like this, is there? Very rarely. People have to join in. You'd have to be a total landlubber who's never, as I said, drop line in water at any point in your life to not have something to contribute to these discussions. Right, you would have never stepped aboard a boat, I would say, to not have mm-hmm. some sea story in you. 
After this short break, Linda Greenlaw on how you handle a tragedy like the perfect storm. Now back to my 2004 interview with Linda Greenlaw. Your task, though, is, because a lot of stories, people aren't real good at telling them. There's not a clear beginning, middle, end. This is where your talent as a writer comes in. You have to kind of put your arms around all these stories and kind of cobble them together, make them something that you can actually put in print and sell as a book. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was probably the work of it because it's fun to listen to somebody else's story, either, you know, just listening in a bar room or actually interviewing someone that you want to use their story and getting it all on tape. It's very difficult to get their story from, from their mind onto my paper, um, not wanting to lose their voice, but at the same time, my literary voice voice has to be there because that's why people are buying the book. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that was some work, and um, it was a challenge. But even describing things that you know intimately to people like me who have not been out there and have seen these huge waves, the way you describe because uh, you said at one point in the book that people who have not been out on the boat, they say, well, what's the biggest wave you've ever seen? There's, there's no real easy answer to that, I guess, is there? No, there's not. And I'll tell you, I have to give my editor so much uh, credit. Um, in this way, I write something and I send it to him and he calls me and says, you need to define these terms. You need to describe this because your readers haven't all been fishing. Mm-hmm. Not everyone knows what, a simple thing like what a fathom is. You have to say six feet. Everyone knows what a foot is. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that really is part of his job. And he's very good at keeping, keeping on me about that and having me really dis- define terms and really describe things in great detail. But you don't, you've, you've taken great care not to sanitize all the terms out because we want to feel like we're kind of on the inside now. When you tell us the stuff, it kind of let us in on some of the jargon and, and talk. We think, we, oh, yeah, whoa, we're sailors now. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have to have some salt in the book. <laughs> and which, you know, some of the nicest compliments I get are um, people who say, I felt like I was fishing with you. Or, you know what, that chapter about David Marks made me seasick when I was reading it. Um, those are great compliments. And also from fishermen who say, I used to go sword fishing, and I've harpooned swordfish, and your description of harpooning a swordfish took me right back to when I was 15 years old on that boat. And that makes me feel so good. It's like, okay, I succeeded. You know, this is one of the things you try and do as a writer. Mm-hmm. You want, in my case, anyway, I want to bring the reader with me on the boat. I want them to feel the bad weather. I want them to feel the excitement of catching that big fish. I want them to feel the disappointment of losing the big fish. And if if one person at a book signing says, oh, man, I felt like I was right there, then I say, cool. I'm guessing, though, that when you're in the middle of a horrible storm and the boat's going up and down and and you have a load on on the deck that's shifting from one side to the other and things like this, you're probably not thinking, wow, when I get back to the bar, this is going to be a great story to tell. (laughs) You're right about that. You're right about that. You know, it's funny. Um, So many people ask questions about, you know, how could you continue to do that for a living? And the question I usually hear is, did you stop fishing after the perfect storm? You know, you lost friends in that storm. That was such a terrible thing. And, you know, the answer is, no, I didn't stop fishing after the perfect storm. Unfortunately, that's part of the business. But it is a part of the business that when you get to the dock, you really remember the flat, calm, sunny days when the fishing's good. And you tend to forget. Uh, I suppose I hear women talk about childbirth the same way. They forget about the pain 
of, of childbirth and they say, well, look at this wonderful baby I have. Mm-hmm. And, and I think fishing or just life at sea in general is much the same. I mean, if you really thought about the bad weather and the possibility that you're going to encounter that storm again the next trip, you'd have a hard time leaving the dock. And I guess what, what, if you're somebody like Alden, you, you really it, – it, it's so much a part of who you are as a person. You can't just at some point, quote, retire because it, it would be like retiring from, from life. That's exactly right. I mean, fishing is Alden's life. It is his total identity. He has no hobbies. I mean, <laughs> this is what he does. He works. He's a fisherman. He's on his boat every day. And um, somebody just the other day said that they thought – the All Fishermen of Liars would be a great book for an aging gentleman because they found it very uplifting in that there's no way Alden's not giving up this life uh, for health reasons or anything else. So um, sick people, you know, don't want to give up mm-hmm. their identity just because uh, they have health issues. They want to continue and keep going on. Well, if he forced him to give it up, it probably would kill him. Oh, absolutely. He would... I, I just you know that someday I'm going to get a call. It'll be very sad when it happens. Someday I'm going to get a call, and someone's going to say, guess what? We found Alden on the deck of his boat. And um, as sad as I'll be, at least I'll know that he, you know, died doing what he loves. A lobster in one hand, compass in the other. Exactly. <laughs> you know, just out there under the stars doing, right. doing what he loves. And you know, to. the chances are, are pretty good that'll happen. I mean, if you spend most of your time doing a certain activity, mm-hmm. eventually you're going to die. And if that's what you're spending your time doing, that's where you're going to die. Yeah, why not follow your passion while you're at it? Yep, exactly. And, and he's, he's, he's got, I gather, really good stories, but he's maybe not the best medium through which to tell those stories. <laughs> Alden is the worst storyteller. <laughs> He is awful. Or if he tries to tell a joke, he'll blurt out the punchline first, and then he'll try and circle back, and it just never works. And he's just not a funny guy. He's funny in that he's um, very abrasive, and he says whatever's on his mind. He never thinks before he speaks. It's a little hard to be in public with him sometimes. And now that his hearing is shot, he'll just be screaming out anything that comes to mind, and it's not always very nice. And, you know, you just want to crawl under the table. Some of the comments that he's making, and everyone's turning to look to see who's so rude. It's like, yep, that's my buddy Alden. <laughs> but he's kind of crusty lovable. He is crusty lovable. I, I say, you know, he, Alden is a guy that people love to hate. He really is. And he works at that. You know what? He was so happy. When I told I, – I mentioned Alden briefly in um, The Hungry Ocean and mm-hmm. in The Lobster Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And when I told him I was writing All Fishmen Are Liars and that um, I wanted him to be sort of a focal point, he was so proud. Um, but he, he made me promise one thing, and that was to not say anything nice about him. And I said, no problem. <laughs> that will not be difficult. I, I can do this. And, of course, I love Alden. He's my best friend. You know, when I was 19 years old, Alden Lehman took a serious chance, and he hired me as a young woman to go on the deck of his boat for 30 days, knowing that we're going to be too far offshore to take me home if I decided I didn't like it or if I was seasick or if I just couldn't do the work. And not too many years later, I will say he really went out on a limb, and he offered me my first boat to captain. Uh, He has given me wonderful opportunity and and it's worked out great i mean it's become my life i mean all i've done other than write three books is fish and i love fishing i like the way i feel when i'm aboard a boat i am passionate about catching fish so aren't i fortunate to have a friend like alden who has um opened this world to me 
Linda Greenlaw will be 61 next month. She is still a sword fishing boat captain, and she lives in Maine. And you can find easy Amazon links to Linda Greenlaw's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're at heardeverything.com, be sure to listen to my interview with another veteran of the oceans, the man who discovered the Titanic, my 1995 interview with Robert Ballard. The ocean is, has such incredible moods. It can be beautiful and violent and moody and and it's actually very it's i think it, it's it's the manifestation of what makes earth so wonderful and of course we post new episodes here every monday wednesday and friday and you can find now i've heard everything on all major podcast platforms and thanks for listening next time on now i've heard everything the woman who time magazine once dubbed america's queen of opera my 1987 interview with one of the greatest operatic sopranos of all time, the legendary Beverly Sills. I think my mother felt it was a kind of grim future <laughs> in that there was nothing else for this poor little fat three-year-old. And she introduced me, to, you know, to the joy of opera, really, and um, I was hooked. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.